Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. On today's episode, I'm joined by Irish Times Business Affairs correspondent Mark Paul. Mark has been arguing that Ireland is moving much too slowly out of lockdown at an unnecessarily high cost to our economy, especially tourism and small business. The bone that I have to pick with policymakers at the moment isn't the fact that they brought lockdown in, it's the way they're bringing lockdown out. It's the way they're, they're, they're it's too slow. Um, Ireland is undeniably now an outlier in Europe. We are the slowest in Europe by a mile. But before I talk to Mark about that, we have some news about this podcast. For the last few months, we've been broadcasting every weekday. Now the country is starting a return to normal, as are you, our listeners, and as are we. So from today, we'll be bringing this podcast to you a little less frequently. But there will still be new episodes of Confronting Coronavirus a few times a week, bringing you some of the best of Irish Times coverage of all aspects of the pandemic. We hope what we've done in this podcast so far has been some help to you along the way. So we have a roadmap with clear milestones for coming out of lockdown, but there appears to be a growing demand to speed things up even though that runs counter to the advice of the people who have helped us successfully to avoid the worst excesses of the virus in this country. Mark, you think the approach in Ireland to coming out of lockdown is far too conservative, don't you? I think it's too slow and I think it's overly informed by scientific and medical advice and perhaps um, um, the, 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 the entire debate maybe requires maybe a little bit more balance. I mean, the, it's, it, it's not just a, a public health problem or a medical problem. Uh, it's also a, a social problem and an economic problem. And you need social and economic input into the decision-making process. And it seems to me that at the moment, the entire decision-making process is informed by scientific and medical considerations only. When there are huge ramifications for the economy, and in particular for small businesses, and that's the part that stands out for me. I mean, you know, when you talk about the FDI sector, the, the, the multinational sector, the government here always bends over backwards to accommodate every single need. Um, in the past, Ireland has been prepared almost to trash its own reputation internationally in Brussels to accommodate the needs of FDI companies on tax. But when it comes to SMEs and, 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 and uh, unwinding the lockdown of the economy, you know, they've been very, very timid uh, in, in, in terms of standing up for SMEs. And that's something that I think is slightly unbalanced. Um, SMEs, the longer they stay closed, the more likely it is that they will never open again. And, and, and that is something that needs to be fed into the decision-making process. Um, and there seems to be no voice for it now. And, and, and that's why I think the process is unbalanced. It's not that I think that the medical science is wrong or that, or, or, or that the doctors don't know what they're talking about in terms of the medical science, but they don't know what they're talking about in terms of the economics of it. And that needs to be brought into the process. Can you understand, Mark, why somebody might believe that it sounds a bit callous, though, to get business up and running, even if it is at a cost? I think it sounds callous to leave SMEs closed if they don't necessarily need to be, because um, there's a callousness to that, because that SME owner may never be able to open their business again. Their workers may never have jobs again. And, you know, having a job is good for your health. The Minister for, for, for Health, Simon Harris, has said that himself. Um, and in the long term, if we're to pay for services for the most vulnerable people in our society. We need tax revenue to do that. And we need a functioning economy to do that. And and in recessions, and, and we're on the precipice now of possibly the deepest recession in the history of the state, um, recessions 
um, people die in recessions. They die directly because of recessions. Um, you know, not just from an economic perspective. And um, when we have deep, deep recessions, people die from mental health issues. They take their own lives. There are studies that are done that show that when there's a recession, that more people die by suicide than they do in normal circumstances. So I think it's quite callous to not take any of that loss of life and that loss of health into account. Um, I, I understand what you're saying. Is there a callousness to this to try and put the economy first? It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a, a competition between the economy and between public health. It should be a balance of both of those things. I mean, if you take one particular measure, for example, if you take um, the measure in relation to quarantining at the border, right? Um, and the chief medical officer of the state, Tony, Dr. Tony Holohan, he recommended that all people coming into the state, whether they're returning Irish citizens from abroad or whether they are people coming here as tourists, that they should be quarantined in a designated facility for 14 days. That's essentially taking away people's liberty, away from their families um, and away from everybody for 14 days. Now, that's in effect, that's sealing the border of the country in any other name. And it's a system of involuntary detention under any other name. And I would say that is absolutely not proportionate to the threat that's being faced. It would be if you were talking about bringing people into the state from from Wuhan at the height of the crisis or from Bergamo at the very height of the crisis. But why should we quarantine people coming into the state coming from Greece, which has a better record on, 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 uh, on, on, on fighting the coronavirus than we do, or from Germany or from the Netherlands or from Denmark or from Finland um, or for other countries like that, who, who, you know, the virus is less prevalent in their communities than it is in ours. And if I was to go on my holidays to Greece in August, right, um, um, under Tony Holohan's plan, I would have to spend two weeks in quarantine when I come back. But if I was in Greece, I'd be more likely to catch the virus when I came home than I would be if I was in Greece. Um, so uh, I think some of the measures they're taking are disproportionate. Um, and proportion and balance is what we should be aiming for here. Because in the long term, this economic crisis will be just as scary, if not more scary, than the public health crisis we faced over the last couple of months. Mark, you talk about deaths as a result of, of recession, but, but we have had a high death rate here as a result of coronavirus. But we have avoided a ca catastrophic situation in relation to deaths arguably precisely because of the stringent measures that were put in place. Yeah, but you, but, but you have to factor in the timing. I mean, they were right, I think, that personally, I think they were right to bring in the lockdown. I don't think that there was any other plausible alternative open to the government at the time. When you look at the public mood in, in, in mid-March, people were frightened in early March when they were calling for the St. Patrick's Day Festival to be cancelled and it wasn't cancelled. They were frightened. Um, um, Ireland couldn't have stood as some sort of an outlier like Sweden at the time, you know, with some sort of a lax kind of a, a, a regime. The public just wouldn't have worn it. Um, um, so so I think the government had no, and considering our lack of uh, ICU capacity, our government had no plausible alternative to bringing in the lockdown. The lockdown was the right move to bring it in. My, um, uh, uh, the bone that I have to pick with policymakers at the moment isn't the fact that they brought lockdown in. It's the way they're bringing lockdown out. It's the way they're, they're, they're it's too slow. Um, Ireland is undeniably now an outlier in Europe. We are the slowest in Europe by a mile. I mean, in, in March, the government was congratulating itself for being an early mover on lockdown. But when you're an early mover, you don't expect to be the last one to ease up the measures. You expect when you're an early mover that you get to ease out of things quicker than everybody else. I mean, Germany has opened up retail businesses and hairdressers and bringing kids back to school. Denmark has brought kids back to school. Italy and Spain, two of the worst affected countries um, in all of Europe with a horrendous level of debts. They are opening up their tourist industries later on this summer because it is an economic imperative. It's up to 10% of their GDP in some cases. So 
So, um, you know, look, I, I understand what you're saying. There was a horrendous level of deaths in Ireland um, um, and, and there are still deaths every day and that's a tragedy every single day. But, but just because the lockdown was right for Ireland at one point in time, it doesn't mean it stays right forever. It was only ever supposed to be a tactic and not a strategy. You've recently been reporting on the effect that lockdown restrictions are having on small businesses. What have you found and, and what have business people been telling you? Well, I suppose the two the two business sectors that I've been talking to the most and that are affected the most are separate. On one hand, the retail industry, and on the other hand, um, the tourism and hospitality industries. In the retail industry, uh, I mean, they're in big, big trouble because, um, um, you know, <clears throat> I, I, I don't know about you, Deirdre, um, um, but in, in my household, um, um, there's been shopping done online. Um, and there's still, there still shopping, still stuff being bought in my house, but it's being bought online, which means it's being bought from Amazon and other companies that are big multinationals. The money is leaking out of the country that we would otherwise spend on our on our main streets. Um, there's a specific industry in the, in, a specific issue in the retail industry that they're very very unhappy about, um, and that's that um, shops that can allow people enter from the street can open about six weeks earlier than shops inside shopping centres. Um, shops inside shopping centres at the moment can't open until August the 10th and they're going absolutely crazy, go- those guys, because they get the worst of all worlds. They say, not only do they have to stay closed for six weeks longer than everybody else, all the pent-up demand um, um, that was waiting, exp- to, you know, the stuff that people wanted to buy that they couldn't get out of their houses to buy, that will all be gone by the time August the 10th comes around because they'll all go into the street level shops to do it. So they're going absolutely crazy and there's a lot of them saying they'll never reopen. On the tourism and hospitality side, I mean, there is no industry that will be hit over the course of this entire pandemic as hard as tourism and hospitality. On the tourism side of things, inbound tourism, that's tourists, you know, coming into Ireland. I mean, there will be no tourists virtually coming into Ireland this year and God knows how many will come in next year. On the hospitality side of things, it all comes down to social distancing um, and, and, and cuts in capacity. I mean, the two metres versus one metre debate, um, um, I mean, that's huge for the hospitality industry. You know, at, at, at two metres, you know, most of them are unviable, completely unviable. And, you know, they've already lost so much money um, well, you know, Adrian Cummins, who's the president of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, or the chief executive, sorry, of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, he said that restaurants will not reopen to lose even more money than they already have. Um, and bars as well, um, and, you know, they have a real issue that um, restaurants can open and serve wine and alcohol and that they, you know, they have to wait uh, until weeks and weeks afterwards. So there are huge is- issues for these industries and they're SMEs and sometimes SMEs in this country just don't get the attention from government that they deserve, I think. Mark, you're saying that it's a conscious decision to sacrifice the the travel and hospitality industries and you found yourself in the position this week where you were agreeing with a lot of what Michael O'Leary had to say about that. I didn't I didn't agree with everything that Michael O'Leary had to say. He was making, I think, some declarations about um, you know, that 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 flying was completely safe and and and, and that, you know, nobody had anything to worry about. I think everybody should be worried about flying. But you know, I mean it, it, there was an EU aviation uh, uh, um, uh, official out today um, um, who said that actually flying is not 100% safe. We can't guarantee that it's 100% safe, but but we can guarantee that, you know, it's relatively safe. Um, so what, what I agreed with, with, with Michael O'Leary specifically was when he said, what's the point in quarantining people coming into the country when you've got an open border across the island into Northern Ireland? into the And that is into the UK's jurisdiction. And Northern Ireland then has an open door across um, uh, across the sea between Larne and Stranraer, straight into Britain. So we have an open door clean into Britain. 
And, so, and, and, and obviously, you know, for political reasons, we're never going to shut the border across the island. Um, so he, his, Michael O'Leary's point was, what's the point in a quarantine at airports, a 14-day quarantine, when you've got an open border into a country that's an absolute chaos, um, which is the UK? And, uh, and, and I think he's right on that. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't agree with him on everything. You know, obviously... He, he wants to get his planes in the air because he wants to make money. I don't think it's necessarily ridiculous that a businessman uh, with shareholders and a business and thousands and thousands of employees wants to get his business back up and running again. I can understand where he's coming from. Um, um, but I agree with him on that specific point. What is the point in a quarantine when we've got an open border with Northern Ireland? And does that not create an argument in, in itself uh, rather than, than bemoan the fact that we have a, a, an open border that government should put in place uh, a more restrictive um, regime in relation to to Britain. No, no, I don't think I don't think that's the case at all. Because <clears throat> I think it's it, it, you know only if you think quarantining is the only measure that could possibly be implemented, as if there were no alternatives. I mean, we have supposedly a shiny new um, testing and contact tracing regime. When people land at the airport, why quarantine them for fourteen days? Why not just test them as soon as they land? Make them wait six hours or eight hours in an arrivals hall or an aircraft hangar or something like that. Test them and and. and and make them wait, give them the result. If they get the off clear, oh clear, uh, you know, off they go into a taxi and into town uh, as tourists in this country spending their money with hospitality businesses and, uh, and, and, and in hotels and so on. It goes back to the argument of proportionality. Locking people up for 14 days, which is what Tony Holohan proposed effectively, um, that is just not proportionate when there are alternatives, to avail- to alternatives available like testing them at the airport and other countries are already doing that. Um, 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 you know, if you fly into Vienna airport, I think in Austria, um, you get tested on arrival there, and you got to pay for it. Um, so it's like an extra tax, I suppose. Um, and Israel has already started testing people as they fly in. Um, you know, we are the, we are a small open economy, one of the most open economies in the entire world. We have to be able to function. People have to be able to move in and out of the country. And we're part of the European single market. You know, um, and we are part of of a a, a market of twenty seven different countries. Um, um, if we shut ourselves off and quarantine people coming in, how can we function possibly as part of that market if you're going to be locked up for 14 days every time you move around that market? It's preposterous to me. In fairness, I, I, I don't think the suggestion is that uh, that people are uh, quarantined uh, at the airport or locked up, as you say, at the airport. Um, people are are being told to to go into effective isolation for 14 days. So I, I think there's an important distinction there. Well, well, no. Dr. Tony Hole in, in his May the 8th letter to the government told the government to plan for the mandatory isolation of all arrivals into the country at a designated facility. Those were his words. Now, I mean, I think the government would be nuts to implement that. What's, what's legally required at the moment is that you have to sign a form. What the government has said it wants to do is make it a legal requirement that you self-isolate on whatever address you put on the form. Um, um, now, obviously, there are degrees of severity to those three options. There's, there's just signing the form, then there's um, mandatory quarantining in your home or hotel room or wherever you're going. And then there's Dr. Tony Holohan's idea, which was in black and white in a letter he sent to Simon Harris, which was designated facility. To me, that was like something from a George Orwell novel. And, and it's, it's the sort of thing 
that I wouldn't blame him for giving the advice. I mean, he's a public health official. It's not, it's not his problem if the economy falls apart. It's not his problem. Um, 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 you know, all the other ancillary uh, 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 problems, they're not his thing. His thing is to stop people getting infected and he thinks this is the best way to stop people getting infected. I think one of the problems is that the public health officials um, um, have been looking at, our, you know, Ireland is an island and they think this is a good thing for an island to do. But in practicalities, Ireland isn't an island at all. We're connected to 26 other countries. We may as well be stitched onto the side of the west coast of France economically because that's the way our economy functions. Um, Mark, you you understand the role of trust in grappling with this crisis successfully. And that means that we need to have confidence in the people who are making decisions on our behalf. Are you not now undermining that confidence and trust yourself? And do you not think that that's an important thing? I think that uh, trust and 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 uh, you know people trusting in our decision makers, uh, it's a two way street. You know they've also got to have some trust in us, surely. Um, and uh, and I think that's a relevant point to raise. And look, I I think in terms of uh, promoting trust, it's the job of journalists to try and 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 exert pressure and scrutiny onto, onto leaders and decision makers. I mean, it could apply to any, any situation, the coronavirus epidemic or any other stories that we do. It's our job, um, and whether uh, we're writing news reports or if we're writing opinion columns, to apply scrutiny. And, and that's all that I think that I'm doing. And, you know, I mean, the corollary of, 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 of what you're suggesting is that, uh, you know, if I'm undermining trust, is that maybe I should just say nothing at all. And I don't think any journalist should accept that, you know. Mark, your argument is predicated on the idea that we have control over the virus now and that we'll be able to keep it under control even as we lift restrictions. How do you know that that'll be the case? Is there not a greater risk to the economy by failing to genuinely stamp out the virus as much as we can now? There is no risk-free way um, of, of, of going forward. There's always, I mean, we, do, we, we, we have to um, deal with risk every single time we do anything. I mean, every time I get into my car in the morning and drive, um, I'm taking a risk. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what the exact number is off the top of my head, but I think it's somewhere around about 300 people or something slightly either side of that die in car crashes each year. But we don't ban driving to try and save those 300 lives. Um, we have to learn how to manage risk and mitigate risk sensibly. Um, and, 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 and that's where I think we've lost a little bit of perspective that we're looking for a totally risk-free way of going forward. And there just isn't one. Otherwise, we'll never do anything. We'd never get out of bed in the morning. And and I think um, the economy has to function. Society has to function in some way, shape or form. We have to look for ways to do things instead of just cowering under the duvet, you know, with ways to do nothing. And and uh, I understand the point that you're making, but but at some stage, we'll have to straighten our backs a little bit and realise there's going to be some risk here, a little bit of risk. Nothing in life is risk-free, but I think there's a greater risk in just leaving the economy locked down because of the long-term consequences economically, socially, for people's mental health, for people's employment prospects, you know, long-term economic scarring. Those things are risks too, and we have to mitigate those. Minister for Finance Pascal Donu has said there is potentially a, a prize for business at the end of this crisis in the in the form of huge confidence in public health. Don't you accept that? 
I don't accept that it's a prize at all. And and I think I think if the business community uh, thought that it was a prize, they'd be saying so. There isn't a single prominent member of the business community that I've come across that concurs with what Pascal Donahue was saying. Pascal Donahue was defending his government's position as a member of the cabinet, as he would expect him to do. He was on a conference call with bond investors. He was he was trying to you know say you know keep buying our bonds, guys. He's defending his position. I understand he was he was being the minister for finance in the, in that conversation. He was saying what he said, but there was something um, wrong in what he said. I thought specifically, he said that. Um, countries like Germany and France that have already opened up their economies, um, he said that people were finding that customers were, were, were too afraid still to go into, or they were wary about going into bars and restaurants and so on. What he was essentially saying was there would be a lack of demand. Um, um, but that's not what bar and restaurant owners are saying. They're saying that under social distancing rules, they'll have a lack of capacity, a lack of supply. Um, that they're going to be, so I, I think there was, a slight, there, there was a slight wrinkle in what he was saying. Um, um, you know, like uh, Ibeck hasn't said what, what, what Pascal Donahue has said. The Restaurants Association of Ireland hasn't said it. The Irish Tour Tourism Industry Confederation hasn't said it. Um, the Licensed Vintners Association or the Vintners Federation of Ireland, none of the big business groups have said what Pascal Donoghue was saying. Um, so, um, um, yeah, look, quite simply, I didn't agree with him. There has been remarkably little criticism overall of uh, government policy in, in this area and, and the restrictions and lockdown and, and, and all of the different measures. What do you say to people who are saying that you have cast the green jersey aside? I'd, I'd say, well, my first one is that it's not my job to be a member of, of, of the green jersey team, the green jersey brigade. I don't think that should be ever, ever be the job of the media. We should just do what we always do, um, which is scrutinise, um, and which is uh, 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 try and inform people um, and not to try and follow a particular agenda. And in fact, by doing our jobs normally in the media, I think that is, in a sense, donning the green jersey. That's, that's our part of the bargain, is keeping people informed. Um, so, so uh, you know, I, I would look at it from, from that point of view. When you say there's been remarkably little criticism, there's an element of, of, of rally around the flag syndrome. Um, um, you know, up until quite recently, I supported what the government were doing. I thought it was good. I thought the lockdown should have been brought in. Um, it was right. My, my specific beef is the way they're unwinding it and the pace of it. I mean, we are a total outlier in Europe. Germany isn't doing it our way. France isn't doing it our way. I mean, these countries aren't known for being reckless. German, Germans are not known for being reckless. The Danes are not known for being reckless. Or the Norwegians, or the Finns, or the Austrians, or the Dutch, or the French, or the Greeks. These people are not known for being reckless. So why does Ireland have to go deeper and harder and longer and, in a sense, more austere than anybody else? We do everything to extremes in this country. Absolutely everything to extremes. And I think, you know, when we have an economic boom, it always has to be the biggest economic boom. When we did austerity, we had to have the most austerity. And when we do lockdown, it looks like we have to have the most lockdown. It just seems to be in our psyche. And and I understand why Dr. Tony Holohan and Simon Harris and the government and so on, why they want to be very, very careful and cautious. They want to save people's lives. I'm not accusing anybody here of acting in bad faith. Um, I just think that they're acting now, in terms specifically in terms of unwinding the lockdown, I think they're acting with a slight lack of proportion to the economic consequences of what they're doing. And I think there's a lack of economic input into the decision-making process at the moment. Um, um, there is nothing wrong with what... Like, there, Germany hasn't gone up in flames in the last couple of weeks since they reopened their economy. Um, um, if Italy and France, who were absolutely terrorised by this virus at the start of it, I mean, tens of thousands of people dying there, if they can open up their economies for a little sliver of tourism safely and believe they can, 
Um, why can't we? You know, and 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 why have we decided that we have to go deeper and harder than everybody else? I just I I, I don't understand where that comes from. And the only um, conclusion that I can draw in relation to it is that our decision-making process at the moment is too unbalanced. There needs to be an economic voice in there um, and because there are long-term consequences to this and we'll have to live with them for a long, long time. Mark, thanks very much. My thanks to Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan who produced today's podcast. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. Until next time.